0: Hello and welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast from the Financial Times. I'm George Parker, the FT's political editor, standing in for Seb Payne. He'll be back in the hot seat next time. This week we'll be looking at the extraordinary convulsions at UKIP in the aftermath of the party's failure to win a by-election in Stoke, a city that UKIP leader Paul Nuttall claimed was the capital of Brexit. Is the party now facing a long and acrimonious decline? But first, Brexit action of a different kind. The House of Lords has made life a little more difficult for Theresa May, voting to amend the Prime Minister's EU Withdrawal Bill, which will allow her to start the process of Brexit, so as to enshrine the rights of EU citizens already living in the UK. Next week, peers are expected to amend the bill again, this time insisting that Mrs May should hold a meaningful vote in Parliament on the result of her Brexit negotiation, if indeed she ends up with a deal at all. The former Prime Minister John Major joined the fray this week with a barely-veiled criticism of Mrs May's unreal and over-optimistic negotiating plan. So where does it all leave us? To discuss the latest on Brexit, I'm joined by James Blitz, our Whitehall editor, Henry Mance, political correspondent. Political commentator Miranda Green, John Denham, the former Labour MP, who's now a professor of English identity and politics at the University of Winchester, and our chief political correspondent Jim Pickard. James, how significant was Mrs May's defeat in the Lords?
1: It's not something you can just quickly pass over. I think that was a painful moment for the government. When you saw people like Douglas Hogg, Viscount Hailsham, former Tory cabinet minister, speaking very strongly against the government's plans not to give an immediate right to remain to European citizens, and when you saw people like Peter Boness, former leader of Croydon Council, Mrs Thatcher's favourite council leader, when you see people like that railing against the government, that's quite painful. And it was a fairly hefty defeat. That said, from what I can see from your own reporting as well, I have to say, it doesn't look to me like this is going to be easily passed in the House of Commons. There don't seem to be enough Conservative rebels. The Democratic Unionists are behind it as well. The bigger question possibly, I think, is whether they can make more progress on the other big amendment that's Mm -hmm. coming up next week which is whether the Commons and the Lords should be given a meaningful vote Mm. once Mrs May comes back from Brussels. And I think if I was in the shoes of some of those rebels, I'd say actually that is a much bigger prize to go for.
0: Yeah, Henry, how do you see that vote going next week? We're expecting a bit of an epic debate, and I gather the Liberal Democrats have ordered 90 camp beds for a late-night session.
2: The mind boggles. They may well have the vote. So the question is whether they can make a coherent enough case for a vote, which we assume would be in sometime in late 2018, early 2019, that it isn't just basically a rubber stamp or bust vote. I mean, the proposal at the moment from the government is that if Parliament votes against a Brexit deal, we just go out on WTO terms. I and mean, that looks to have all kinds of difficulties that business would hate, and therefore that MPs and peers would not really endorse. So I would have thought there are two things that peers can do. And if they provide a platform that Labour can then stand upon and say, oh, actually, we adopt this and we think in the Commons this is a good good thing for us to unify around, that helps. And if they can send a message to Tory moderates at the same time that this is something worth rebelling on, then that can feed into the Commons process. It all sounds
0: eminently reasonable, the idea of Parliament be able to have a vote on whatever Theresa May negotiates in Brussels. But in her defence, there is a problem here, isn't there? If you go to Brussels to negotiate a deal and the people on the other side of the table know that at the end of the day, that deal probably won't stick because you'll go back to Westminster and Westminster will say, we don't like the look of that, go back and get a better deal. That really hampers the negotiation, doesn't it, and undermines you as prime minister.
1: That's exactly right. I think that is the reason that the government don't want it. It basically means you're effectively creating a trap door. And what the Europeans will say is if we push hard enough, you'll fall through it because in the end, we'll give you a deal that your parliament can't accept. And so that makes life very difficult for you. There is one other point as well, though, which I think is a big weakness in the government side, though, and that is if there's no deal. If you actually look at the Lord's debate at second reading, the best speech, I think, was made by John Kerr, Lord Kerr of King Lockhart, who wrote the original Article 50. And what he basically said is there's a more than 30% chance, I don't know if you agree with this, but there's more than 30% chance that there will be no deal at all, the the talks will completely break down. And if that happens, and it's a realistic possibility, there simply is no recourse to Parliament. And that, I think, is one of the bits that's actually missing. They've got to build that in as well. But your broad point is correct. The government doesn't want to concede on this, but... There is a a pretty strong case on the other side. It's certainly the best hope, I think, for those that want the Tony Blair, John Major argument which we'll come to in a minute, that perhaps later on there might be some kind of reconsideration. If you can build that process in, then you can fight for an awful lot.
0: Which obviously is why Theresa May doesn't want to accept this amendment. Henry, do you think there's any chance of this amendment sticking when the bill goes back to the House of Commons?
2: Well, certainly Theresa May, I think, is not going to be willing to compromise on this. I think it looks unlikely that Tory MPs, like, only Ken Clark really put up a fight the first time it went through the Commons. So the idea that he will be joined by 15 or 20 colleagues is at the moment hard to credit. It's worth remembering that she is trying to do this whole process incredibly fast compared to what Vote Leave themselves had said. I mean, they were looking at not leaving until after the next general election, after 2020. And she's trying to ram through a whole series of negotiations, Northern Ireland, perhaps the Scottish independence referendum, all of these things before mid-2019. So I think that the Parliament's scepticism is in some ways understandable, given that we're going even more radical than the referendum campaign suggested.
0: How would you describe the mood among Conservative MPs, pro-European Conservative MPs at the moment? Do you think they feel cowed under pressure from colleagues from the media?
2: Yeah, I think there's a fair amount of resignation. I mean, the Tory party is quite good at fighting it sometimes, but it's also quite good at coming together when it feels that it's been settled and when it feels that there's power to be exercised. And I think that Theresa May has convinced a lot of people that she's the only game in town. Opinion polls are very good. There are jobs to be had in future years. So the willingness to rebel hasn't been there yet.
0: James, how do you feel? Do you think the atmosphere that's been created, particularly by some of the newspapers, is having a chilling effect on a proper debate about Theresa May's Brexit strategy?
1: Yes, I think it is. We're not really having a proper debate on it. I mean, I think the curse of the whole Brexit thing, obviously from the Remainer point of view, is that this is a time of political decisions. But the economic consequences are much further down the road. And I think that is what has really frozen the whole discussion in this country, because people are saying, well, at the moment, there isn't any real economic effect. I think, actually, the biggest thing that happened this week was something we're not talking about at all, but which I think there's been relatively little focus, was the announcement by BMW that it's probably not going to build the electric mini in Oxford Cowley. Now, that may seem a small thing, but actually, that's a real blow to Greg Clark, the business secretary, because he's been going around to car companies and saying we need to make the UK into an electric car hub and a battery operated hub in Europe and that's the sort of little thing which I think is quite important and ought to be causing some concern in Downing Street because I think the car industry every single day there's a bad story you know Ford's Mm -hmm. closing a thousand jobs at Bridge End Nissan has had some wobbles it's pretty clear that the future of Ellesmere Port and uh, Luton is in trouble with Vauxhall that I think is the kind of thing that might change the debate but at the moment I think politics just looks totally frozen at Westminster I totally agree with that and you do meet some
0: people around hardline remainers who are you almost feel a willing economic bad news to come along to change the terms of the debate and that's a dangerous mindset to get into isn't it
2: yeah, I mean, that's almost the fate of an opposition party. If you look at Jeremy Corbyn, politics from his point of view, why is he sticking around? Part of it is because you expect the economy to worsen at some point. I mean, we've had a fairly solid run since the financial crisis. History tells you that recessions do happen. And an opposition party or Remainers within the Conservative Party will benefit from that. Now,
0: let's turn to John Major's intervention, which talking to people around him seems to me was inspired by the fact that he felt Parliament wasn't really doing its job in holding Theresa May to account. He talked about her pursuing an unreal and over-optimistic agenda. I just wondered, is anyone listening, James? I mean, you remember the the Major years. It was 20 years ago since he left number 10. Is anyone actually listening to him these days?
1: Well, he deserves to be listened to. I've read the speech several times. I thought it was a very good speech indeed, but it did not get any of the attention that it really deserved. John Major was not saying reverse course. He said Brexit's a historic mistake. He says that right at the start of the speech. He says he doesn't think it's the right thing, but he says the case was put to the public and we're going ahead with it. What he was saying was the strategy that Theresa May is adopting is the wrong strategy. And she's creating a very optimistic impression of what can be achieved, and you can't do this. You need to build in some of the reality in the way this is being presented to the public, and not enough of that is being done, and therefore people are going to be disappointed. Now, I think that that is a reasonable argument to make I don't know if you agree with this but I think that the brexiters do paint things in these incredibly optimistic terms boris johnson responded by saying come off it sunshine it's all going to be absolutely fine but this is all ridiculous because it really is much more a question of light and shade and black and white and gray and so on I think that was the argument What I thought was deeply unfortunate was that the Brexlers then turned on him with these ad hominem attacks. They vilified him, saying he was a depressed figure, embittered. It was pretty ugly. Mm. And I think there's a deeper question as to why it is in our politics today that people like Major simply don't have the kind of respect they probably deserve. Well, in the defence of the Brexiters, they would
0: say that they were subject to the same kind of vilification, media attacks. John Major famously calling the members of his cabinet, the Eurosceptics and his cabinet, bastards. They've had to put up with this for a long time. And if you don't like it, you shouldn't be in the arena in the first place. Henry, you're a former media correspondent. I just wondered why you felt that John Major's speech, for example, was leading the main broadcast news bulletins, given the fact he is, you could say, a figure from the past.
2: I think having serious people who have huge name recognition in the country works well on on broadcast news. But A lot of Fleet Street has a particular perspective on Brexit and it's not going to give those front pages to John Major. And I I think there is something contradictory in that, given these are Conservative papers who supported these people when they were in office and thought they were okay, and don't seem prepared to offer them any kind of leeway or or honest forum now.
0: When you look at John Major, nobody thinks for a second that John Major's planning to make a comeback to frontline politics. The same might not be said of Tony Blair, who made another intervention on Brexit a week earlier. He's setting up his own... Institute, imaginatively called the Tony Blair Institute for centrist politics. What do you think he's up to, Henry?
2: Tony Blair is not a popular figure, he's not an influential figure, and I think that is sometimes hard for people in maybe in London and in the media who got to know him as a very powerful influential figure to realise that that's past. He simply does not have the capacity to swing this Brexit debate one way or the other. I think he still thinks that there's a, a role for someone to set out a moderate, articulate case, and he's right. The problem is that in the absence of anyone else, he's putting himself forward. And I think it's actually more the role of the next generation of frontline politicians. And I would look at Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, as perhaps the person who is most likely to come forward. But it's their role, really. I mean, Blair is trying to fill a void that he's not really able to fill.
0: James, do you agree with that? You were our political editor through some of the Blair years. Do you think he's given up all hope of coming back?
1: I don't think he's given up hope of coming back. I'd be surprised if he's done that. It's not him. But I think there's no chance for him. There is something that has happened over Iraq and it's debatable, I think, whether it's the right judgment the public has made, but they simply do not trust him at all. And that level of vilification and negativity about Blair is very, very deep indeed. It's not quite there for Major, which is why in many ways the way the Major speech was treated was very unfortunate. The one person we haven't mentioned... Maybe you will in a moment, but I think the one person that does deserve to be mentioned at the end of this week is Nicola Sturgeon. There's one person who really probably is worrying. I don't know if you agree, the, the UK government right now, it's her because she is moving towards the possibility of a second referendum. And in many ways, the SNP are emerging as the big opponents of the May strategy. Everybody else, you know, the lords, the pro-Europeans, they're trying, but they're not getting very far. The SNP is a much bigger obstacle, I think. I
0: think that's a really good point. Henry, you keep an eye on Scotland. Do you think that Nicola Sturgeon really wants a second referendum on independence?
2: Officially, the view is she hasn't made her mind up that she said it's very lightly after not just uh, the Brexit vote, but also Theresa May's decision not to keep Britain in, and therefore Scotland, in the single market. I think she has to go for it and that she will go for it. If you don't take opportunities in politics, you generally live to regret them. If you think about David Miliband not challenging Gordon Brown or those kind of things, yeah. the moment passes. And the SNP has been very popular for a fair amount of time. Yeah. And it, it can't rely on having an opportunity in 10 years time, 15 years time to put this vote to the people. And
0: the party activists will demand it. And of course, she has got the cause to have a second referendum with Brexit. But the question is, is it actually going to be harder for her to win the referendum the second time round given the fact that England will be outside of the European Union. There'll be a new hard border between Scotland and England. There'll be the whole question about whether Scotland would have to use the euro. We've had the collapse in the oil price since the 2014 referendum. All those things make it quite a perilous task for Nicola Sturgeon, doesn't it?
2: I think it is going to be difficult to win. I mean, Alex Salmon, her predecessor, is an optimist on this and says, look, we started behind in the last referendum campaign and we caught up. And so if we start a little bit less behind in this referendum campaign, then we can definitely make it over the line. I wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion. I would say that The SNP are a pretty strong campaigning force, and Nicola Sturgeon is a very persuasive politician in the way that Theresa May probably isn't north of the border. It will be a different array of forces this time around. It won't be a Labour-led sort of no campaign to independence. It will probably be the Conservatives playing a major role with Ruth Davidson, who is a competent politician, and then Other parties trying to learn the lessons of the 2014 campaign and maybe doing their own thing. So people trying to make more progressive messages that counter the SNP's natural appeal.
0: Dangers ahead for Theresa May, James. But
1: at the moment, would you say she's winning on Brexit? She's winning now. But I think where we'll be in 14 months' time is absolutely impossible. I think if we have a disorderly Brexit, no deal, falling onto WTO rules, impact on markets, then I think the case for a scottish referendum and the possibility of that being won is very very high uh, that's the issue and then i think inside the uk and the rest of the uk the question i think then arises and i still haven't got an answer to it maybe you do is if things don't go well in 2019 is she sure she can win a 2020 election i still think that's the bit of it i haven't got my head around who's going to be so that's true at the <laughs> moment but if we have a disorderly brexit I think everything's up in the air. Meanwhile, on stage
0: right, or is it stage left? I'm not sure anymore. UKIP were providing some light entertainment as the recriminations flew after Paul Nuttall, the new party leader, failed to win the Stoke Central by-election against Labour. Douglas Carswell, the party's only MP, called on the party to adopt a softer tone on issues like immigration so that voters might start to give UKIP the benefit of the doubt. Nigel Farage, the former party leader, said the party was radical or it was nothing and accused Mr Carswell of being a Tory stooge who should be thrown out of the party. Oh yes, and Mr Farage thinks that Mr Carswell intervened to stop him getting a knighted. Not that he's bothered, of course. With Farage now developing a media career in America and the party's main aim of Brexit being delivered by a Tory Prime Minister, what's the point of UKIP? And is this the beginning of the end? Jim, can I start with you? Capture some
3: of the absurdity of what's gone on this week in UKIP land. UKIP, even at the best of times, have not been the most professional outfit going back over many years, I remember we did some research a couple of years ago where we'd looked at their cluster of MEPs and something like a third or a half of them had left in certain circumstances of falling out with each other and fighting expenses, claims, and and all this kind of stuff. And I think there's something that attracts people to UKIP. There's something about the UKIP personality which is quite idiosyncratic, not necessarily team players, people who were seen for so long as outliers of British politics, wanting to leave the EU now seems like very mainstream. It is very mainstream, but when UKIP was founded, two decades ago it wasn't at all and so it did attract people kind of on the fringes and also we have the issue where Douglas Carswell it's suspected in some quarters that he only left the Tories and stood again to become a UKIP MP as a way to kind of be a moderating influence on UKIP and his heart probably is still Tory so if you're only one single member of Parliament in a House of Commons of 650 people is question mark is he really a tory that's quite a bad position to be in
0: yeah miranda jim's captured it well there do you think this is the beginning of the end of the party
4: I think you should be really careful about reading the last rites over UKIP, I have to say. This kind of level of chaos we've become quite used to, and I think they're probably quite used to it as well. It's almost standard operating procedure for this particular party. I do think this question of Carswell is interesting, though, because, of course, he is their only presence in the House of Commons, and he himself set the precedent that when he left the Tory party and joined UKIP, resigned his seat and fought Mm. another by-election, he, of course, can't leave UKIP because then he'd have to stand again in another by-election so in a sense you could argue it would quite suit him if they threw him out so they have to come to some sort of relationship which they can sustain even though they clearly can't stand each other and even though Carswell is clearly motivated by a completely different set of political objectives than the rest of UKIP except for this coincidence of views on the UK leaving the EU which they've now achieved.
3: Mm. He was asked the question the other day wasn't he should he stand as a Tory and he said oh I don't think the good people of Clacton should be put through another by-election which is a very big sign of where his heart and mind are which are not staying in UKIP and our colleague Henry Mance put it very well this week when he did an immortal intro saying the good news is that UKIP is no longer two warring tribes the bad news it's now at least three warring tribes.
0: (laughs) Now John all this has been kicked off really by the failure of Paul Nuttall to win the Stoke Central by-election a seat in classic working-class Brexit territory what did you learn from that contest?
5: Well, I I think the problem that UKIP's got, and I don't think you'd read The Last rites either, is that if you're going to be a populist radical party... You have to have an opportunity, you have to have a message, and you have to have leadership. And I think the opportunity is undoubtedly there. What's not clear is whether UKIP is well-shaped for it, and certainly when it's got the leadership. I mean, if you look at the voters who currently out there are not sure if they're represented, they are classically socially conservative, but they're also economically radical. So, for example, they don't like Europe and they don't like immigration, but they also think they're done over by big business, and they think the country is running in the interests of other people and certainly not them. And I think UKIP's real problem is they've traded on the first two, particularly on Europe, but massively on immigration for those voters. But they're not really radical in any of the other ways that people want to see. So when the stuff happens about Mick Ashley or the takeover of British companies, UKIP have got nothing to say in that debate, unlike their continental, or they say even the American counterparts of their politics. So their message isn't quite right. The beating heart of of UKIP is really small-town conservatism, and that's not where there's a gap in the market at the moment, particularly with Theresa May, who's parked very firmly on the land of small-town conservatism, you know, sort of low taxes, grammar schools, hard work, everybody knowing their place in the world. That's not the message for the people that UKIP were trying to reach in Stoke.
3: I think it's also worth mentioning the money as well. We had the Electoral Commission figures yesterday for the last quarter of last year, and UKIP came in with something like £33,000 which is barely enough to organise a kind of celebration party at the Ritz, such as they had a few months ago. It's it's not enough to have a functioning political party. And this interesting character, Aaron Banks, who gave an awful lot of money to UKIP and gave a huge amount to the Leave.eu campaign, which was a rival campaign to vote Leave. His mind seems to be elsewhere. He seems to be looking at doing something different in 2020, which is to sponsor a whole roster of generic anti-politics candidates. Under what banner, I'm not sure, but it may not be UKIP. And he's also poured money into something called West Monster, which is a sort of news service along the lines of Breitbart. So if he basically quits UKIP, it's not obvious where their cash is going to come from?
5: No, I think that's true. And I think that one of their failures is that they remained very dependent on one or one or two wealthy individuals real populist parties tend to produce the sort of grassroots movement, whether they're of left or of right, so the same with with Bernie Sanders, who've actually got lots of people who send in their penny packets of donations and who actually feel part of it and feel ownership of it. And UKIP has never really been that sort of party. It's always been, and one of the reasons that it's always been so chaotic is it's always been tightly controlled by a few people from the centre, so they've never made that stage. And I think one of the interesting questions about Aaron Banks is whether actually he is capable of funding the move to that sort of politics, given that he seems to be really quite a control freak at the same time.
0: Now, Miranda, even if UKIP aren't in terminal decline, they're in difficulty, obviously, at the moment. Who do you think are the main beneficiaries of that, of the other parties? And how effectively do you think Theresa May is trying to carry out this act of taking UKIP votes by effectively wrapping herself in the flag, going in hard on Brexit?
4: I think very effectively at the moment. And I think this whole development of a strand of blue collar conservatism is probably where the action is. And I would imagine I'd hesitate to speak for him, but I imagine John would be rather distressed to see the Labour Party not managing to capture anything of this kind of zeitgeist, which is, as he was explaining, to do with politics needing to rediscover a kind of sense of belonging and a sense of place which ought to be absolutely core Labour territory. So I think Labour is definitely not benefiting at the moment from UKIP's problems, as we saw in Stoke Central. And I mean, last night, there was another by-election last night where, in fact, the Labour Party lost a council seat in Salford, of all places, to the Conservatives. Mm. So I think you don't need to look much further than that sort of evidence to see that Theresa May's persona, her rhetoric, her whole stance and the mood music, as well as the substance of her decision to go for hard Brexit, has pleased that particular constituency of voters.
5: I I think that's right. And I think there's very little sign at the moment of my party, the Labour Party, positioning itself to take advantage of Theresa May's problems when she gets into problems, which she undoubtedly will. So on the one hand, if we're talking about the same group of voters, it's very difficult for Labour to connect with socially conservative voters because of the Labour position on immigration, which, if anything, is becoming more and more pro-free movement rather than anything else. But secondly, the strand of economic radicalism that would really challenge Theresa May's talk about industrial strategy is also missing. So I was trying to think before this discussion about the missed opportunities of the last fortnight, which any party, which Labour could have exploited, but as indeed could have a UKIP-type party, so you had the potential craft takeover of a major British or part-British-owned company, absolute silence. You had General Motors selling its European subsidiary, and you see Greg Clark scuttling off to France saying, please be nice to our car plants. Where were the voices saying, why don't we have a British company that can buy the the European part of General Motors? Why do we have to go off to a state-owned French company and ask them to be nice to us when the Americans have caused this problem in the first place? You can see those opportunities which are there to, um, not to detail policy here, obviously, but to challenge the political agenda of the government. Mm. And actually, nobody's taking those opportunities. UKIP can't because they're not really critical of those types of business decisions. And Labour doesn't because it's not the way they're working at the moment.
0: Mm. Jim, do you see now the possibility that Labour are going to face a serious challenge in the Midlands and the North from the Conservative Party?
3: Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the cultural values of Northern Labour working class, for want of a better word, voters, they do on many levels have more in common with Theresa May than they do with Jeremy Corbyn, who, as we know, vegetarian, cycling, North London, rally, placard holding, protesting, none of these things are bad, necessarily, but they're not the same values of people voting up North who were unhappy with immigration, they love the royal family. That kind of blue Labour had a pop at all. this. remember Morris Glassman and people like that. They tried to come up with a suite of policies that would appeal to traditional Labour voters who were being peeled off by other parties. But I think there is a bit of a problem there.
0: John, can I just take a little detour down a Scottish route? We've got the Scottish Conservative Party Conference and the SNP Spring Conference coming up very soon. To what extent does the possibility of a second Scottish independence referendum play into the whole question of English identity politics? Or do English people, frankly, not really care what's going on in Scotland?
5: Well, I think what's very interesting is that it was obvious at the time of the last referendum that a lot of English voters were not exactly enthused about the vow that was made by UK party leaders to Scotland and didn't want any more of it. And that fed pretty directly into the Conservative victory in 2015. When there was all that campaigning, you remember the posters of Ed Miliband and Alex Simon's pocket and all the rest of it, The Tory party didn't invent that campaign. They identified the issue of English fear and resentment of Scotland in their focus group straight after the referendum. and They played it very carefully, but it probably was enough to tip the election in the Conservatives' favour. And I think that as you go into a potential other referendum, what's now clear is, I think, an English mood of not wanting to do the vow again. I mean, I've just completed a survey with Conservative Home of Tory party activists in England. What's quite striking is that a third of them actually say, well, if Scotland went, it would end unreasonable demands on England for more money and more political power. And only about a third of them think that the break-up of the union would really do serious damage to the rest of the UK. So there's quite an interesting dynamic there, I think, with Theresa May today saying it's her personal priority to maintain the union. Actually, probably two-thirds or more Tory members are pretty sanguine about the break-up of the union and wouldn't want to see any special efforts made to keep Scotland here. So... It's difficult to say how that will face. That that may encourage Theresa May to say, all right, have a second referendum, but it's a like-it-or-lump-it referendum. No special deals. And and gamble on winning the referendum simply because there isn't really anywhere viable for Scotland to go. But it's an interesting dynamic. And I think the English, and particularly the English-identifying people, are less and less exercised about making special efforts to keep Scotland in the union.
4: That's very interesting, John, but don't you think there's probably a huge gulf then between those conservative voters or conservative leaning voters and Theresa May and the cabinet? Because surely after David Cameron accidentally going down in history... As a man who lost our position in Europe, Theresa May will do anything not to accidentally go down in history as the Conservative and Unionist Prime Minister who lost the Union.
5: Hmm. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that Theresa May probably is a genuine Conservative and Unionist, but her party is moving quite sharply away from that. And we don't know if this is recent or long term, but perhaps sometimes you reap what you sow. You had the 2015 election campaign in which Conservative activists were asked to go out on the step and fire up English feelings of fear of Scotland. It's not entirely surprising that we now find Conservative mm-hmm. activists reflecting those in their own values and the pressure they want to put on the Prime Minister.
0: Fascinating stuff. Now, Miranda, you're a Liberal Democrat. To what extent can the Lib Dems benefit from a decline in UKIP support?
4: Well, only I think in the sense that the Lib Dems during the coalition years lost their ability to be the plague on all your houses. <laughs> candidate in any given election and then being sort of so rudely thrown out of power by the electorate in 2015 and reduced to a parliamentary rump. They are having quite a lot of success with local elections again. Of course, Richmond was a triumph because of their sort of hardline pro-EU stance. Mm. But I think that they can pick up a bit of the disgruntled voter group again because there is a very strange minority of voters who do switch between UKIP and the Lib Dems. I've yet to meet one, I have to say, and I would love to, to focus group those people it, it's not uh,
3: voters who, who back the remain side in the referendum well, in, whoever in they indeed, are
4: indeed exactly and um, so let's get them all in a room at some point but i think on the sort of larger landscape that's not where the lib dems are looking to what they are looking to is to cannibalize the pro-remain pro-eu Liberal minded Labour voters who, for example, have been very alienated by Jeremy Corbyn's decision to whip Labour through the mm. lobbies to support Theresa May on Article 50, for example, and who are continuing not to speak out really on much to do with the government's hardline Brexit stance. And they're quite chipper. But then again, you know, they're chipper even when they're lying on the ground bleeding. So you never quite know how to interpret it.
0: (laughs) Jim, finally, at the end of all this uh, UKIP turmoil this week, do you think Paul Nuttall can survive as leader? Or are we going to see a fourth or fifth or sixth, whatever it is, coming of Nigel Farage? (laughs)
3: if past history is any guess on this one then of course it will be gone within hours and replaced <laughs> by someone else and then replaced by someone else a few hours later for now i think they're just going to trudge on regardless but whether he's there in a year's time you, you wouldn't put money on it would you
4: no
0: and uh, john finally to you do you think last year's brexit vote marked the high points when it comes to english identity politics or do you think it's still got some way to run
5: Oh, I think it's got some way to run. The poll we did um, just before Christmas showed quite a marked further swing towards people identifying predominantly as English compared with predominantly British in the year of the referendum itself. And that, of course, is a challenge to Labour and the Lib Dems because they both did best amongst the shrinking group of British identifiers and worst amongst the growing bit of English identifiers. So I think there is some way to go yet.
0: And that's all for this week. Many thanks to our guests, uh, James Blitz, Henry Mance, Miranda Green, John Denham and Jim Pickard. And next week, Sebastian Payne will be back from his holes and back in the hot seat.